head right back to Miss Janet in the back, waving there. Uh, Dismiss the children to their time this morning. Welcome to Missy or Missio. Oh my goodness. Wow. Holy cow. Where did that come from? <laughs> Welcome to Renovation Church. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. That was a total. I'm excited to be with you this morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here. And, uh, and we are going to take a small break from Exodus this morning. And we're going to jump into a passage that is, I would imagine for some of you, uh, fairly familiar. It's one of those phrases you hear often. I, uh, I've had something in my head all week, over and over and over again. Does that happen to anybody? I'm going to tell you what it is, and some of you are going to understand it, and some of you are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. But I woke up this morning saying to myself, now watch me whip, now watch me nay-nay, now watch me whip, whip. See, Dan's doing it. Watch me nay-nay. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what in the world is he talking about? And those of you who maybe are a little younger or have kids realize this is a song by a guy named Salento. And it's just running over and over and over again in my mind. And I can't get it out. Who's been there before? All right. Now, I may or may not know how to do a little bit of that dance, and I'm not going to do that for you. But, oh, <laughs> wow, there's that. But my kids do all the time. And how many of you guys have seen some YouTube videos of, of people whipping and nay-naying? All right. I bring that up because it's virtually meaningless, right? There's no meaning to this thing that has been running through my head over and over again from what I can gather. And when we uh, decided this morning as I talked to Mike about maybe taking a little break from Exodus here and jumping into something in the New Testament that, that potentially, well, it doesn't potentially, it actually has incredible implications for our lives. It's one of those verses that has run through my head for years. How many of you guys have some of those? It's one of those passages in Scripture that I've known for so long, and I, I've said it over and over again. I think I repeat it in infinitum to such a degree that it, in some ways it's lost its impact or it's lost its meaning. And my prayer this morning for, for me and for you as we walk through this together is that we would know this passage in a way that we've never known it before. And uh, that's intimidating for me because this really, these four verses I'm about to read for you should take us several weeks to go through. And I'm going to ask God to give us the grace this morning to grasp a piece of what he's saying in his word. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Let's read that together. And then let's pray. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not in according not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just ask this morning that you would illuminate your Word to us, that you would somehow, by your Spirit, do something in our hearts that helps us to grasp these four verses. God, help us this morning as we get into your word about who you are and what you've done. Help us this morning to know you better, to know this amazing salvation, to know what it means to be justified. Help us to grasp this in our own lives in a real way, in a practical way that changes our life, that changes our worship, that changes our relationships. God, we ask that you would do all of this because only you can. And we know that you desire to draw us closer to you. You desire to change us. You desire us to understand this amazing love and grace that you've demonstrated for us. Through Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we have these things. And we ask that you would reveal them to us this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm one of the elders here, but I vocationally have a different job. I'm a prosecutor, and, and I know it's a long story. Uh, but some people say, well, what are you, you're a pastor, you're an elder, and you're a prosecutor, and it doesn't make sense. And someday, like Dan said, I will have coffee with you, and I'll, I'll talk to you about it if you're even remotely interested. But, but I say that to say this this morning. Every single day I wake up, I go to work, just like many of you, and I go into my office and I grab what's usually a yellow file, and I began to read it, and I look through a crime that someone's committed. Um, I'm the chief of special victims, so the crimes that I deal with are usually child abuse or sexual assaults or domestic violence. So I'll read through these files, and I will read police reports, and I'll begin to gather information, and my job as a prosecutor is to go into a courtroom and to present evidence to a jury or to a judge to demonstrate that the guy sitting over there or the woman sitting over there at the other table did it, that they're guilty. And so I, I work every day to prove in a courtroom people's guilt. Look at witnesses. What do they have to say about what they saw? Do I believe them? Are they credible? Look at physical evidence. Is there DNA? Is there blood? Is there uh, pictures that demonstrate the injuries? Is there something physical that can only uh, be explained by what we seem to think has happened here? Look at the statement of, of potentially the victim that says, yeah, this is the guy that did it. This is the person that did this to me. And, and judge credibility and judge corroborating evidence. What are the things that we can put together? How do we piece this story together? Because as a prosecutor, I'm not going to stand in front of the 12 people left who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty, right, um, and try to prove to them that this is exactly what happened unless I believe it's exactly what happened and the evidence shows me it's exactly what happened and I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So I put forth effort, work, man hours um, to, to prove that someone is guilty. And, and I thought a lot about that as I look at this passage. 
Because I think some people today in our secular humanistic type culture that has been transformed by the, by the Enlightenment and by philosophers like Immanuel Kant and, and folks in the 1700s that, that, that put forth ideas that began to transform our culture and over the last couple hundred years have caused us to think about things a little bit differently than we do biblically. Um, I think a lot of people would look at us as Christians today in our culture and say, Ah, what is this condemnation stuff? What is this guilt stuff as it pertains to you and me? Guilty of what? Don't we, don't we all just, like Kant said, create our own moral law? Isn't it just moral law isn't just something that we reason within ourselves? What is this exclusive claim that things are right and things are wrong. Aren't things just right for me and just right for you? How could you, in fact, as a human being, just make an exclusive claim? There's no such thing as exclusive claims. And as Tim Keller aptly says, to say there's no such thing as as an exclusive claim is what? It's an exclusive claim. But none of us really believe that. I don't even think the most passionate secular humanist really believes that. Had an intern at our office this summer, wonderful young man from Ireland, right out of Dublin. And uh, I just like to talk to the kid because his accent was so cool. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time with him. <clears throat> I thought it would be weird if I just had him sit in my office and read me things. So I would, I would actually talk to him. <clears throat> So before he left and went back overseas, he said, hey, let's just go get a pint of Guinness. Of course he said that. And I sat with him for a moment and, uh, and had a conversation with him, and I had an opportunity to talk to him about faith because he thought faith was so ridiculous. And he, he recognized over the summer that I was someone who believed in Jesus. And he kind of had this, this thing about him, this don't we create our own moral code. And he said to me, I don't believe you can make those exclusive claims. I don't believe that you can say things are right or things are exclusively wrong. And I asked him, I said, what? Let, me, let me ask you something. Is there something you passionately believe in that you just think is right? And he said, of course. His goal is to be a part of the legal community over in Europe that fights for human rights. Oh, I said, that's wonderful. So you believe in human rights. What do you believe? Well, I believe that women shouldn't be treated less than men. I believe uh, that, that there's corporate greed and that the corporations are mistreating people. Well, wh- why do you believe those things? Well, because it's just wrong. Well, who told you that? Why is it just wrong? Why is it wrong? If, if, if you create your own moral... Uh, law, if you generate that in, in, within yourself, why is it just wrong to mistreat women? Why is it just wrong to mistreat children? Why is it just wrong as you sat through our internship all summer to sexually assault somebody? Why is it wrong to perpetrate evil desires upon a child because out of your selfishness? Why are those things wrong? Why do we know those things are inherently wrong? Because we recognize something, don't we? That there is right and wrong and it's designed and created by a God who's bigger than us. It's not just something we create in, within ourselves. It, it, otherwise, you couldn't look at someone else and say what they're doing is wrong. Ever. Nothing would matter if God doesn't exist. You can do whatever you want. But we know he does. 
and we know that there's just things that are wrong, and we know that there are things that happen to people that create a debt, don't they? When someone's burglarized, the, the violation that they feel because someone came into their home and someone violated their privacy and someone took their stuff, there's created in them, as you sit with people who've been through that, and maybe some of you have, there's, there's a debt, there's something that's owed, there's someone that was wronged, and that debt needs to be repaid. Has anyone ever felt that towards someone else? Sat with a family who lost their little one uh, a couple weeks ago, their two-year-old to murder. And I recognized something that I certainly can't repay. None of us can fix. The criminal justice system can't control, can't make better, but there is a debt. There was somebody who was wronged in a way that created such an immense debt and such immense pain uh, that that there needs to be somehow a repayment. There needs to be somehow justice. There needs to be somehow things made right because something through crime was stolen from them that could never be repaid. Isn't that what sin does? There's debt, there's condemnation. And I would be remiss, listen, if I, if I didn't sit over the last week and as we sit this morning and read the word of God, if I did not turn this passage right in and focus on me. Here's what I see in my life. That I'm guilty. Here's what I see in my life. That I've sinned. That I continue to sin. I am an imperfect parent. I am an imperfect husband. I have been sinful in the way that I've treated people throughout my life, in my selfishness, and in the things that I do every day. What I recognize in light of the law of God that we've been walking through, through the book of Exodus over the last couple of weeks. How many of you guys, over the 10 weeks that we adjust, the, that, that we walk through the 10 commandments, how many of you, like me, didn't look inside yourself and say, whoa, do I ever desperately fall short of the glory of God? Am I ever the picture of the man in Romans 3 who does not choose good, who continually is bent towards my own will to do my own thing for my own reasons because I selfishly just want to? How desperately guilty am I before a holy, awesome, all-powerful, perfect God? And so what we see in this verse, that there is therefore now no condemnation, is some news that is pretty amazing, is it not? As someone who's guilty before God. Now condemnation is, is an interesting word because you see, you see maybe a politician, you know, Barack Obama, stand up in front of the country and say, I condemn the actions of ISIS, Right? And in the use of the word condemn in that context, it's really something that is a little bit more not real. It's, it's we condemn it. We, we want it to be condemned, but we use the word condemned as an action that needs to take place or as a, as a verbal way of putting a, 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 a condemnation on action. But the word in scripture, there is therefore no condemnation, is different. It's not used in that way. 
Condemnation really is a sentence that has been already passed. It's not, I condemn your actions. It's the judge in a courtroom looking upon a defendant and saying, you are condemned to death. I pass a sentence upon you. You're guilty and you have been declared legally guilty and the sentence is passed. You are a condemned man. Or woman, someone sitting in prison has already been condemned. They have been sentenced. The sentence has been passed. And I got to tell you, folks, that as we look at the Word of God and as we see rising out of Romans 8, there is a sentence that has been passed and that is declared over each one of our lives because of sin. And that sentence isn't something that should happen, it's something that's happened. It has been passed. And that's what God needs to do in our lives. The sentence, the legal declaration, needs to be changed. And we see it in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what has God done? Listen, God has, in the courtroom of our lives, he has declared us not guilty. Amen. He has declared there is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus, God has made a legal declaration that because of Jesus, and I'm going to get to that in verses 2 and 3, we have been declared not guilty. There is a legal declaration that you and me, if you're in Christ, are justified. He is the justifier. He is just and he is the justifier. And he has come and he has made a legal declaration that we are not guilty because of Jesus. Jesus. Amen? Now, some of us don't live in that if you're in Christ, do we? Some of us, um, it just, it doesn't seem like it, right? It doesn't seem as though, it doesn't seem as though we're, we're living in a legal reality that we're not guilty, that we've been justified. Some of us, we, we walk through life in a sort of interim probation, right? Interim probation is a phrase we use when we're in court, and there'll be, there'll be a guy that will come in, and he'll recognize that the evidence is overwhelming against him, and he'll ask for a deal. He'll say, listen, if I plead guilty, can I just get put on interim probation for a year, and I'm going to be supervised by a probation officer, and if I do good, if I keep my nose clean, if I stay out of trouble, and I don't reoffend, then can I come back in a year, have improved myself, and then withdraw my plea, and then be declared not guilty after that. I'll plead guilty, give me a year to prove myself, and if I do a good job, then I'll come back and you can let me off the hook and I'll withdraw my plea. And if I screw up sometime within the year, then you can just throw me in jail. This is a deal we do sometimes with people. It's called interim probation. But in light of what Jesus has declared and what Jesus is offering to you and he's offering to me, here we have the great judge who wants to look upon you and say, hey, I'm going to declare you not guilty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of us say, well, okay, but how about I just leave for a little bit, try to work things out on my own, do a good job and earn it, and then maybe you'll let me off the hook. Doesn't that seem silly? You see, what we see in this passage is justification precedes sanctification. Justification, the legal declaration 
of being not guilty comes first, and it becomes the basis for verse 2. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What do we see here? That now because of justification, we get the power for transformation. Amen? Once we, we can't get this screwed up. Some of you are saying, okay, this is just theological semantics. You're just, you know, you're just saying, you know, little detail stuff. That, no, this, this matters. This great salvation that God offers to us is that because of Jesus, we're declared not guilty. And on the basis of your acquittal, he now empowers you to walk out your sanctification and for your life to be transformed. Folks, this should be freeing to you and me this morning. I've known so many Christians that walk in the back doors of a church and you see the chains of condemnation on their heart. You see the look on their face of guilt. I failed again. I've screwed up again. I failed in my marriage. I failed with my kids. I failed at business. I failed in my honesty. I failed in my integrity. I failed in so many issues of life. And, and we walk through life or we walk into the back doors of our church with the weight of condemnation on our life saying, oh, if God would just love me, if I could just be good enough to earn his love, if I could just be better, if I could just work harder. And here's what we recognize, is that God recognizes in our sinfulness that the law has failed in our flesh, and we can't do it. That's why Jesus did it for us, amen? You can walk into this place, yes, recognizing the, the weight of your sin and that, that you and I in our sinfulness have broken the Father's heart and we can be burdened with that relational rift, but we need to walk in boldly with guts, with a, with a gutsy guilt. We need to walk in and say, God, I can step into your light and recognize that although I failed, you declare me free, not because of what I've done, but because you just love me and you did it. Amen. And you can walk in freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? What great news for me and for you. And what that is supposed to do is produce in you a spirit-walking, life-transforming power to begin to walk out your salvation in a way that you begin to sin less and less and less till we get to glory. God, on the basis of justification, on the basis of the legal declaration that because of Jesus you're not guilty, he doesn't look at you and see all your screw-ups and all your sin and the whole videotape of everything you've done wrong. When God looks upon you, he sees Jesus and declares you not guilty and empowers you through his spirit to begin to walk out your sanctification and to begin to treat people different, begin to love people better, to begin to live by the law of God, which is the essence boiled down love. The way we treat and relate to God and relate to each other. Amen? Isn't this good news? I'll never forget that movie or the play. So it's a play and it's a musical, but I watched the movie, okay? Les Mis. How many of you guys have seen some version of Les Mis? 
I'm going to reference Liam Neeson's movie, all right? I'm sorry, those of you who are real Les Mis fans. Because it, this, this portion of the movie was so powerful for me because it was actually the first time I watched it, believe it or not, was when I saw this movie. And, and you see the moment where uh, Jean Valjean is the, is the main character, right? He, he comes in, he, he, he had stolen bread and he had done hard time, if you guys know the story, and here he is, he's starving and he's desperate and he is not knowing what to do and he, he comes upon a priest's home and he goes into the priest's house and you see this priest who, who welcomes him into his home and his wife and, and they welcome him into his home and, he, and he, they feed him and they clothe him and he's there and there, beco- there comes a moment where he's laying there at night not recognizing the free offering that this, this particular priest is giving him and he, he says he, he must contemplate to himself in his own sinfulness and his own desperation, I'm gonna steal from this guy and hopefully I can steal enough to just get me through and he steals the silverware and he runs away. And I love the picture in this movie because they, they catch him, the police catch him, and they drag him back in chains. And he drags him in, in the movie, he drags him into this backyard where the priest is kind of got a black eye because he popped him on the way out. And the wife is yelling at him for letting this guy in the house to begin with, right? And she's working in the garden and, and they drag him into the backyard and, and he's sitting there with his head down and he's guilty. He is guilty, guilty, guilty and he is desperate and he recognizes that his life is probably over and he is waiting for sentence to be passed and he stands in front of the priest in chains with the guards next to him and the priest says, Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. And he walks over and he grabs them and he piles them on top of the spoons that he's holding. And the guards look at him and say, what are you talking about? He says, oh, I gave these to him. And he forgot these. How, how could you forget the candlesticks? Why would you forget this? And he piles it into his arms. And he says, why is he in chains? He didn't steal anything from me. I gave it to him. If that's not a picture of my life in light of the gospel. As I stand convicted and guilty, and God, because of Jesus, gives me everything. None of which I deserve. None of which I've earned. And here's what you see depicted in this story. He leaves that place And it produces in him a completely new life, does it not? He is no longer the thief. He is no longer the the man who steals. He becomes a man who treats others with love, who treats others with grace, who treats others with respect. It, It produces in him the power and the motivation to go forward and completely change his life. And what we see here in Romans chapter eight is that as God declares you innocent, as God decrees your justification, he then empowers you with the spirit to walk forth and really as Jesus said to the woman, go and sin no more. Amen? So we see in verse two, the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. After we're justified, after justification becomes the foundation, we respond with the empowered spirit in us to walk out a freedom from sin and death, a freedom from the law. 
because of the Spirit of God. There is so much more to say about that that we can't do today. But we can't do this backwards. You can't try to walk it out without the legal declaration. The sentence over your life needs to be changed. And God has changed it from guilty to not guilty in Christ Jesus. Amen? That needs to happen first. And that happens in Jesus. How? How does that happen? Look at verse 3. And I'm going to hurry. He condemns sin in the flesh. Oh, I'm sorry. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. What God has done something that the law could not do. See, the law couldn't do this. What are the two things that the law couldn't do in our lives? The law couldn't save us and the law can't sanctify us. The law cannot save us, it cannot justify us, and the law cannot sanctify us. So God did what the law couldn't do, and he did it by sending his son Jesus. Let's think about this and try to break it down for a minute. Condemnation is a sentence passed, that's the issue. We're condemned to death, we're guilty. But the law was, as you see in verse 3, weak by the flesh. The law was weak by the flesh. Listen, here's the issue. The issue isn't the law, okay? There's nothing wrong with the law. The law of God is God's perfect law on how we are to flourish and best relate to him and relate to others. The law of God is that plumb line that the contractor drops that shows us the wall's crooked. The law is the thing, we didn't know it was sinful until the law told us it was sinful and we recognize the perfect standard and that our life doesn't line up to it. It's not the law that is at issue, what's at issue is, John Piper says it this way, commandments of the law are not evil, we are. So as the law encounters our imperfect flesh, it's weak. Does that make sense? As the law of God hits us in the flesh, it becomes weak. And so what did God do? How did he do this? If the law can't justify us and the law can't sanctify us, if the law as the perfect law hits our flesh becomes weak, Paul says in Romans 7, the law kills me. The law kills me because my life lined up to it is crooked. What did God do and how did he do it? He judged the law in flesh, by sending his own son. And you might say to yourself, but Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus, who is God, fully God and fully man, Jesus, who is part of the Trinity, the Son of God, he comes and becomes in perfect flesh. He comes, he, come, he, he comes to earth and he becomes flesh and Jesus walks among us and lives the perfect life that none of us could live. And as I stand in the courtroom, I am sinful, I fall short, I'm guilty. And as Jesus stands, he is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. He is the perfect example of who God is. He's God revealed to us in the flesh. 
So how does God do this? How does God judge sin in the flesh? Well, it was prophesied 700 some years earlier in Isaiah 53. Read that with me, if you would. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. In the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God judged sin in the flesh by sending his own son, Jesus, to come and to take our place. Jesus was my substitution. Jesus was your substitution. I am the one who deserved to experience that separation from God. I am the one in my own sin who deserved condemnation. I am the one who deserved the sentence. And as I stand guilty before a a just and perfect God, as I stand guilty before him, next to my Lord and Savior, who did not deserve it, who stood innocent, who sacrificed himself to come into flesh and to be there, God looks upon him and declares him guilty and sets me free and declares me legally innocent. So I'm empowered to walk in sanctification and be in relationship with him. The one who didn't deserve to die, died. The one who didn't deserve to experience the the excruciating separation from God to the degree that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who didn't deserve to be forsaken was forsaken. Why? So I don't have to be. So you don't have to be. So that when I stand before God someday, he doesn't see everything I did wrong, but he sees Jesus. He died so I don't have to. He experienced judgment so that I don't have to. In the full cup of God's wrath, for all of sin was poured out dry on him. He was crushed for my iniquity. He was bruised for my sin. The chastisement, the punishment that brings me peace was laid upon him. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I see here that the sentence that could not be removed from my life by law-keeping has been removed from my life in Jesus Christ. Amen? So you can't get that declaration of not guilty. That legal sentence cannot be declared over your life by your law-keeping. You and I, 
we see it's clear in Scripture that we can't. But that sentence is removed. The sentence of guilt is taken away from you, and it was put on Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he declares you not guilty in Christ, not by your law-keeping, but by his Because he was the spotless lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was that atonement that throughout the Old Testament, they had a symbol of it. In every way that they worshiped God, they would sacrifice the bull. They would sacrifice the sheep. They would take the spotless lamb and the perfect blood of that spotless lamb that they killed. And they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God year after year after year after year to somehow pay that debt that debt that exists, that debt that we all know sin has created. If anyone sitting in this room that's ever been wronged, you know that a debt is created that needs to be paid for, needs to be atoned for, and no longer do, do, does anybody need to ceremonially kill any sheep because the perfect and the spotless sheep was killed on our behalf for all time. Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of the Father, indicating it is finished. It's over. He was the final and the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And sin, the debt of sin has been atoned for. Amen? This should empower us, motivate us, amen, towards sanctification. Now the rest of Romans Verse 4, 5, 6 begins to talk about how we can walk out this incredible, the implications of this incredible salvation. And we are empowered to walk in the spirit of God and live lives that are different. Let me summarize that by just saying this. This understanding, this theological understanding of what God has done in our lives as God's revealed it in scripture should produce in us doxology. It should produce in us worship. It should produce in us a life that recognizes we owe God everything and let's worship him with our lives, understanding that he's empowered us to do it through his spirit, amen? Some of you, as we close, you may be sitting here thinking, it doesn't seem like it to me. I can invite the worship team up. This reality you're talking about, it doesn't seem right. Things are tough. I'm having a hard time overcoming sin in my life. I have experienced tragedy, sickness in my body, maybe even sickness that potentially leads to death physically. Some of you say, in the midst of what I'm facing, This Romans 8 reality doesn't seem right. This there is therefore now no condemnation. Here's what we recognize in Scripture. That we continue to live in a sinful world, don't we? That this sin in this world has caused disease and difficulty and death and destruction and awful things that happen. But here's what we have in the Word of God this morning. That I want your faith to be encouraged. Regardless of what it seems like, we don't have to live in the seems like, do we? Regardless of what it feels like subjectively, we don't have to live in that reality, do we? Because what we understand, regardless of physically what may be happening, regardless of difficulty and struggle and tragedy and sickness and death, 
what do we understand? That he is not our enemy. That he has declared us not guilty because of Jesus Christ. And that we can reach out of the subjective thing that we're going through. And we can hold on to something true, something objective. We don't have to live in the seems like. We can live in the word of God says. There is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? Now there may be in our lives consequences of sin. There may be in our lives disease and difficulty, potentially stuff that leads to the worst. But we recognize this, that God in his love and in his mercy knows exactly what's going on. That he is sovereign and that he loves us. And that at the end of the day, he is drawing us closer to himself. And that there is, as we stand before him someday, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us to live in the reality of your word this morning. Help us to, regardless of what it feels like, put our faith and our trust in you and in what you've said. This morning, throw the weight of my life on it. Jesus, we declare that we completely rely on you. You've done it. You've done what we couldn't do. God judged sin in the flesh. God did what the law failed to do. And in Jesus Christ, you've saved us. You've saved us and you've empowered us to walk that out in a way that worships you, in a way that loves others. God, help me in light of this to love people better. God, help me in light of this to be loving. To love those who disagree with me. To love those who hurt me. To love those who uh, have affected my life in a, in, a, in a poor way. To be forgiving and to be loving. Help me as an implication of what you've done in my life. Respond with worship in living the ultimate essence of your law. And that's love. change us this morning because of who you are and because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said.